Hey, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and I have a great guest today. I have Denise Sanders from the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, which is a, an amazing organization that I have recently learned about, and I wanted to make sure that all of our, our listeners and viewers also knew about the great work that you're doing. So welcome, Denise. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really exciting. So tell us a little bit about how the organization came to be. It has an amazing story, but not everyone has heard it. So yes, the, the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, we often now just say Search Dog Foundation, uh, started back in, the idea started in 1995 when our founder, Wilma Melville, got home from being deployed to the Oklahoma City bombing in April of 1995 with her search dog, Murphy, who she had trained as a disaster search dog and certified through FEMA, um, which is what many of our teams do nowadays as well. Um, so she returned home after realizing there were just so few fully trained and certified disaster search dogs in the country. And it's obviously been a long time since then, but a lot of progress has been made. There still aren't enough. And so Wilma came home with this vision and this dream. And if you ever had the chance to meet her, she's very much like the dogs that we train, very driven, very determined, not going to stop for anything. She's fantastic. And so she came home and really made it happen, starting out on her coffee table, you know, with a bunch of friends as volunteers. And now we've grown into this organization 24 years later that we have 70 plus teams across the country stationed with many different firefighters and different fire stations. And they deploy all over the country as well as internationally to different disasters, whether natural or man-made. And so that's, of course, amazing. But part of the really neat aspect about her, about the organization's or her approach, but your entire organization approach, is that these aren't puppies that are bred from top tier dogs that are then raised in search and rescue homes that first year and qualify and weeded out. You have a really different approach to how these dogs um, are able to then fulfill these amazing jobs. So tell us how that aspect came about. So we firmly believe here at the Search Dog Foundation, as I think many of us do across the nation, that every dog has a purpose in life, but they just may not know it yet. And it may not be readily apparent the outset. Uh, the majority of our dogs are shelter dogs. So they are strays, they're owner surrenders, they're dogs that unfortunately oftentimes are on the euthanasia or unadoptable list because of these behaviors that we actually look for. So super high toy drive, meaning they don't just want to play fetch 10 times in the backyard. They have the innate drive and desire. They have to possess that toy. They have to have it. And it's fantastic to watch them because that is not something you want in a pet. You know, you don't want a dog that's going 100 miles an hour 24 seven, but that's exactly what we need for this line of work. They have to have the stamina, they have to have the drive and the focus. And these dogs are amazing at what they do when we find them and are able to focus that energy and channel that drive into a job. That's really what they need It's just that job. They need that purpose and they need someone to help show them the way. So we see them go what we call from rescue to rescuer. Uh, we pull them directly from the shelters. They come here to our national training center, which we call 125 acres of doggy Disneyland because they get to play all day. This is a game to them and they absolutely love every moment of it. And we wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> And so how many dogs are you training at any one time? Do you have 10 dogs or 50 dogs? Like, and, and then how intense is that training? Of course, I'm sure it depends on the dog and the background and all of that. But, but. It does. It really um, it depends on how many dogs we're able to find at any given time. Um, their training takes anywhere from about 8 to 12 months. 
So it takes a little bit of time because we're not forcing them to do this. They actually are in a way teaching themselves with that guidance from our training team. Um, and so when they first get here, the very first thing that they learn is the Olive Garden Park Alert is what it's called. And that is how a dog, um, in a real disaster, so whether they were on the rubble of the Haiti earthquake in 2010, or they were helping at the Montecito mudslides just over a year ago, when they bark, that sound, the first responders that are there, they know that means they've found someone buried alive beneath the rubble. And our dogs are live find dogs, so they're looking for live humans, survivors beneath the surface. Um, and that they can't see. And so that's the very first thing they learn that carries them through the rest of their training. And what's interesting about it is from a training standpoint, that's the first time we really see them realize they are a good dog. Um, a lot of times, unfortunately, they've been told they're bad dogs for barking or, you know, no, you can't have that toy because they won't leave it alone afterwards or any number of things. And so you see these dogs come in, they don't want to make eye contact. Humans have never given them any reason to connect. You know, it's really kind of a sad state for these dogs, but then within a week or so, learning that not only do we want you to bark, you're a good dog when you bark, and you get the toy when you bark, it's just the best of all worlds, and you really see them light up, and that's the beginning of that new life for that dog, and it is absolutely amazing. I've been here for almost 11 years now. It never gets old. I don't think it ever will. It's that transformation moment where the dog goes from rescued to becoming a rescuer. It's amazing. It makes me, it makes me have an emotional response because, you know, my thought is they come in and like you said, they've been bad dogs, Yeah. but then for them to see that they're, that they're doing something that is good and that you're looking for that, that has, you have to see them almost, their souls come back to life. Yeah. They're like, oh, I did it and you wanted it and I did it right. I mean, a part of this is probably rebuilding their confidence in who they are as dogs as well. That is, that is exactly it. And even if the dog doesn't make it as a disaster search dog, which is what we do and what we're hoping for, why we choose them, even if that dog doesn't quite make it in that line of work, they will never go back to the shelter. We have what's called our lifetime care program. And so no matter what happens, that dog is going to be successful in a new life, whether it's another working capacity doing detection work or even service work. You know, we've had dogs go on to be diabetes alert dogs that didn't make it for our program because maybe they don't want to walk on the rubble. And, and I get that. It's hard to walk across a rubble pile. Um, but they will always be successful and always have a home. Some of them go into pet homes afterwards with quite a bit of training because, like I said, they're not meant to be pets at the outset. Um, but some of them realize that they can be good dogs and good pets. They just need a little bit more of that guidance. And so, yes, it is really the beginning of seeing that confidence building. And that continues throughout their time with us and even beyond. Once they go to either a new trainer or a new home, we continue to support that dog for the remainder of its life. So the ones they're in, they are well taken care of. And we, like I said, we wouldn't have it any other way. They deserve the world. They haven't had a great start to life, but we want to change that from the moment we get them. What's the oldest dog that your program has trained? Have you trained some, what I would call seniors? Have you trained some midlife dogs as well? No. So what we look for usually are Labs, Goldens, Border Collies, German Shepherds, Malinois, between about a year and two years of age, because it takes the eight to 12 months or so to train them, we need to be sure that that's a certified resource as the task forces and fire departments see it um, for as long as possible so that it's the, the length of their career is very important. So we start out with younger dogs about a year or two old. Sometimes there's a dog that has some training on it already that might be a little bit older that we can see the potential that it would be okay with that timeline. 
But older dogs also, we start to worry once they get up in age a little bit about the physical strength capabilities and sure. things like that. If they haven't been on a strong regimen, like a core strengthening regimen for their entire career, yeah. it's very difficult to catch up once you're a little And that makes sense. The, the physical demands of what this job requires are, I'm sure, astronomical, really. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And so then, Denise, do you, do you after the training is complete, um, do you then, do you have then applications from, let's say, fire department to say, we want one of these yeah. And then there has to be, then do you, do you go and train them in their environment or is this the team come to your environment for training? So at first they come to us and yes, a lot of folks want to be handlers because it sounds exciting and fun. Um, majority of them are volunteers though. Um, they're not getting paid for all the training hours. They're not getting paid for the driving to and from training all over, you know, Southern California, wherever they're located. Um, and the time away from family, it's really a large commitment. So we screen them almost as carefully as we screen the dogs um, for, for new handlers. Uh, and they have to be attached to either a state or a federal task force, meaning that those teams will de be deployed as a disaster search uh, resource, as an asset. Um, and so once we get through that process and they prove that they're ready to go and they're in it for the eight to 10 year commitment, um, then they come out to our training center for about two weeks of initial training, we call our handler course. They meet all of the dogs that are gonna be going out and graduating um, because we're looking for the personality match and skill match. It's not about just whichever dog's ready and whichever human is ready. It really is about finding that chemistry and making sure that we can see at least the glimmer of that bond from the very beginning and we know that they're gonna thrive and do well together. Um, and that is yet another moment and career milestone that is amazing to watch when our training team is up on stage at graduation out at our canine memorial wall where we have the tiles of all the dogs that have passed on before them. They're really watching over as we pass the leash to these new handlers. It is an amazing moment because our training team is saying, not only is this dog ready, we're trusting you to carry on the training and the regimen that needs to be done to make sure you guys are ready to deploy. Because at the end of the day, we wanna be sure these teams are as strong as can be because it is a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. The dogs see it as a game, but it is a very, very serious game for us as humans that we need to keep it fun for the dogs, but they also have a job to do, a very important one. So it's a and wonderful moment. Do you have dogs in, in all 50 states? Not all 50 just yet. <laughs> we would love to someday. Um, but the task forces that they are attached to deploy everywhere in the nation. Okay. So FEMA, for instance, has 28 task forces across the United States. Um, so the best example most recently would be any number of the hurricanes that happened um, last fall and into the wintertime. It happens almost every year. Um, when something like that happens, uh, several task forces from all over, from Nebraska, Texas, New York, Virginia, you know, Pennsylvania, they all will go down to where this is happening, sometimes even beforehand if we see it coming, to pre-stage and be prepared. So if someone hasn't evacuated or someone gets caught not knowing they needed to evacuate, they're able to go door to door and also check homes like that. So it, though we always talk about rubble piles, it can be any number of scenarios that they can be sure that a live human isn't left behind. And that is the, the most important part. We hope for survivors, you know, we're hoping that they, they do a bark alert if someone is in fact there. But really when you stop and think about it, we're hoping no one's buried beneath the rubble. We're hoping that everyone got out and is safe and that they're not there. So if a dog covers an area that we're asking them to search and does not alert, that's a good thing because yeah. that means that the resources, the manpower, the tractors, the equipment, everything can move on to where they might be needed and where someone may be trapped. 
these dogs are the best tool that we have. There's no technology that can match their speed and efficiency when they're on the job. Yeah, and it just has to be amazing too to watch them work. It has to just be awe-inspiring because like you said, they have the ability to identify things that humans can't or x-ray can't. So I mean, it really is just amazing. Do they do they leave the country in some instances or no? Just stay yes. in the US. Yes, so there are two FEMA task forces um, designated as internationally deployable. One is based in Virginia, one is based in Los Angeles County. Um, and so those two task forces in particular will respond to an international call for help. So um, a, a year or so ago, there was the Mexico City earthquake, um, and they were able to respond to that. We've gone to Nepal, um, Haiti, Japan after the tsunami earthquake. Um, and so the teams deploy as a group, it's about 70, 75 humans and dogs, six dogs, 70 or 75 humans. Um, and so they will get on a plane and go. They have to be requested and everything has to be done in the right way, but they get there fairly quickly and begin searching and helping teams that are coming from all around the world oftentimes when the call goes out internationally. And that is an amazing, amazing thing to watch. You know, they may not all speak the same language, you know, they may do things a little bit differently, but they are all working for the same purpose, and that is to save lives right up. Wow. And do you, so two questions. I think most people would hear this interview and say, I work at a shelter. I have three dozen dogs that your program needs. <laughs> so yes. I think either people are going to know a dog that they think aligns with your mission, or they, or they themselves are inspired to be a handler. Right. How do you go about, do you have teams looking for uh, adoptable dog recruitments or how do you go about finding your dogs? Yes, so we have recruiters that are across the nation in different areas um, that are always combing the shelters, looking at Craigslist, looking anywhere and everywhere we can to find these dogs that someone may think that they're going to find a home for the dog, but if it really truly is a search dog candidate, a home without a lot of training more than likely won't be successful. And so we're trying to find them even before they go to the shelter. It doesn't have to be in a shelter either. Um, you know, someone can contact us about the dog they bought as a puppy from a breeder that was working dog stock that they realized a little too late was just too much to handle and is not a good fit. And, you know, to their credit, they know their dog and they know what their dog needs. And it is fantastic to get those calls yeah. rather than a dog going to the shelter. So, yes, they're in the shelter. They're looking everywhere we can. We do have um, strict requirements and an evaluation process. Not every dog will make it. Um, when I say high energy, as I mentioned before, a lot of folks think, oh, my dog will play fetch five, ten times in the backyard and, you know, a lot of fun and a lot of high energy. And oftentimes I will tell people, think of the highest energy dog you know and times it by ten. These dogs really have to have it, which is sometimes an intangible it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, they have to have just the right mix of what we need behaviorally um, in order to do this job. So our evaluation process does seem a little picky sometimes to people, but it's for good reason. Sure. As I said a little bit before, our standard is would I want this dog going out and searching for my family or your yeah. family? It is a, a standard that we have to hold high. And we're happy to help people, you know, with suggestions on where these dogs may go um, if they don't work for us. But we will absolutely take a look at any dog that someone thinks has that potential if they're willing to put it through the evaluation process, send us some video, do a little bit of the legwork. But we would love to talk to anybody that thinks they have it. It's awesome. And then on the flip side of that, uh, uh, if someone says, oh my gosh, 
I want to be a handler. Uh, how does one go about getting the human training necessary? Like, do you, you, is there, do you start with the states? You start with your states, BSMA, or how does that work? Excuse me, it really depends where someone is based. Um, it, it, it's a two-hour recall, so they have to be within a few hours of um, a theme over state task force, which a lot of people are not, um, and so that's disappointing to a lot of folks. However, what I would tell someone that's interested in this is, first and foremost, I would contact your local sheriff's department. Usually there's a volunteer search and rescue team that does wilderness search. Nearly every county in the nation has something like that, or the neighboring county will have something like that. And so if you want to get involved in search and rescue work, that is a fantastic place to start. Get a little bit of experience under your belt. Understand what you're getting into. It's a huge commitment, both energy-wise, physically, as well as time. Um, and so it's a great place to kind of get your feet wet, see what it's all about, see if it's really for you. And then after a little while, if you decide it is, and you're absolutely loving it, start researching where the local urban search and rescue task forces may be um, and see if there's a disaster search opportunity as well. It's not something that we just decide because it sounds great, you know, after exactly. watching this interview. It really is a time-consuming process just to become a handler, let alone to receive a dog. Um, and you really have to be committed for the, the long haul. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's really good advice because it does sound, I mean, I think, um, humans innately we're wired at least we should be wired to want to help we hear this and think oh my gosh I want to get involved but it yeah I mean I think that it's an unbelievable commitment as a handler and of course huge commitment for the dog which brings me back to the dogs when dogs um, are in the field working do they work for four hours? how long uh, some dogs I know will just work and work till exhaustion yes. in their nature do they and with only six dogs and let's say 70 support team I'm sure those dogs are rotating. Like, mm -hmm. do they work for six hours and then and then rest? Or how does how does a day? What does a typical day look like for a dog in this mission field? Right. So it depends on the day. It depends on the disaster. Um, a regular training day, for instance, they may be at the fire station with their firefighter, and they may do some agility work, or they may, you know, do some balance and athletic conditioning because we start them on that in our canine gym, as we call it. Um, so they have that training regimen before they go. So that may be what it looks like. Then they may get that call that there's a disaster they need to respond to that night. So now they're packing up their crate, they're getting their go bag, they're getting ready to go. Um, they may be on a plane for a while, they may be on a bus for a while. You never know, it just depends on where it is and what it is. Um, if it's a larger scale disaster, like an international deployment, as you're describing, where it's that 70 or so person task force going with about six dogs, they will usually split into shifts so that everybody gets to rest, everybody gets the renewed energy and gets taken care of. Um, but the dogs are not necessarily searching for a full shift. So oftentimes they'll, the human component, <laughs> they will be looking and doing reconnaissance to see where the, as we call it, the highest target environment may be. So where there's the best chance of a survivor being and a dog being able to find them and pinpoint. Um, because they can only search so much, the humans can only move so much rubble and debris. So we want to make sure we're as efficient as possible um, when they're doing that. So in that scenario, that, that's usually what it is. The dogs may actually be resting more than they are searching at first because they want to make sure they're conserving energy for where they're really needed. Yeah. Now, um, the Montecito mudslide or something more local like a missing person search, that was something where they arrived and it was immediate. They needed to get out there. There was a large area to cover. They knew people were missing um, and they knew how many people were missing. 
and the areas that they had been in prior to the mudslide. So that gives the, the first responders a little bit more information, a lot more specificity on where they need to go. And so for that one, um, they also worked in shifts because it was a several day deployment. They were there for almost a week. Um, and they had to be careful to make sure the dogs rest because as you said, the dogs aren't gonna stop. They right. need to be told when to rest, when they need to eat, when they need fluids, things like that. Um, and then, like I said, for a missing person search, that may be only a couple hours anyway, um, depending on the size of the search area and all of that. So they may just go for it and the dog may just search the entire time if they kind of have an idea of where they're going. Every yeah. scenario is different, but it's totally different. Yeah. yeah. It's that handler's job to be the advocate for the dog. So that's the important thing. Sure. And what's your, because the program has been going now for many years, which is awesome. I'm sure that a lot like humans, retirement is not a set age. And sometimes you retire because you have an injury or you become ill or you just get old. There's a lot of reasons why dogs go into retirement. Currently, what's your oldest working dog, Denise? I want to say it was at least 11 or 12, technically. <laughs> um, the dogs are certified for three years at a time. And so oftentimes the handler will kind of know that it's coming and say, you know, we're going to officially retire when our certification expires, which is a great way to do it. Um, they stay rostered as a resource as needed. But once again, that handler is the dog's advocate. So if he doesn't think that the dog is capable of doing a full three-week international deployment, they may save the dog if a missing person search comes up. So there are a lot of different options, a lot of different little nuances that, that come up. But oftentimes it's right around 9, 10, 11 years old um, is about right for that. Rubble work is difficult work on the body. Yes, these dogs are highly conditioned, but we would never, ever want to push a dog to the point of getting injured. So it's definitely better to err on the side of earlier rather than later without overdoing it because these dogs mentally never lose the drive. They want to go work. They don't care that the body is getting colder. They just want to do their job. Yeah. Um, and so maybe they'll continue to do simple rubble searches even into retirement. You, you know, you can't take the search out of the dog. You can take yeah. the dog off the search, but they're never going to lose that. And our handlers take such great care of them. Every dog stays with their handler for the rest of its life. They get to enjoy as many tennis balls as they want in retirement. It's, you know, they, they really do live the good life and they deserve it. They did great work. It's so, it's just so wonderful. It's very inspiring because many, with many service dogs, of course, they're, they're acquired as very expensive puppies from very expensive sires or, you know, really nice lines of dogs, working dogs. Um, and then they go through a very intense program and said and done, the, the, it's thousands and thousands of dollars with, uh, with a purebred dog. I'm sure that you're depleting is thousands and thousands of dollars that you are putting into these dogs as well. The difference is they were homeless dogs to begin with, which is, or a dog in, that, that needs to be rehomed. But you're in essence recycling, like you said, you're the, the rescue dog becomes the rescuer. It's just a beautiful system that is very fulfilling for everyone involved, which is fantastic. So I just really appreciate the innovation of your group working with dogs that need second chances and providing not, not just an amazing second chance for the dog, but a life-saving chance at people that need the rescue. So this is a, this is a, everyone getting rescued is um, blessed by, by the, by the amazing work that your organization is doing. So we're happy to do it. We're proud to do it. <laughs> yeah. Really, really, really inspiring. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes of your day to talk 
with us. Uh, the work that you're doing is necessary, important, but also very, very inspiring. So I hope that um, people, if you have questions, uh, why don't you get the website if people have questions where they can learn more about your organization? Yeah, absolutely. So it's searchdogfoundation.org. We are a nonprofit. So everything that we do is funded by individuals and organizations that are giving. We don't receive any government funding at all. So to your point, we're able to do this because of folks that are listening like you uh, that are able to give back to these dogs and then eventually to the fire departments because we do provide them free of charge. The fire departments do not purchase these dogs from us. It's so given to them along with the support free of charge. So thank you all very much. So great. Well, we're happy to help you get the word out and support everything that you're doing. And we couldn't be uh, more happy with uh, all of the amazing work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing what you're doing. We'll check in in a few years when your program is bigger and stronger, more diversified and get the word out and see and see what you're doing at that time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much.